You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 37 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 28th of November, 2016. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. Will Forster. Hello, everybody. And Asher King. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing? Good to see we're all still here after the hurricane. For those of you listeners that, that missed this, because it probably wasn't big news outside of Costa Rica, but uh, Hurricane Otto came through last week. It's the first time in 174 years a hurricane has made landfall in Costa Rica. It missed us by about 50 miles, and actually, weirdly, there was no wind, there was no rain. We, you wouldn't even have known we were on the edge of a tropical storm, but there are other villages in Costa Rica that got completely swept away, and uh, there are still people missing at the moment, so... It hit the Caribbean coast and crossed the American landmass and gone from the Caribbean over into the Pacific. Uh, I was sitting outside at, uh, in a bar, La Negra, down here at about 11 o'clock at night, right when it was, you know, supposed to, to hit be hitting peak yeah. at its maximum. Otto, and, uh, me, that's just me, how you like to drink. Yeah, <laughs> 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 um, I, I like extreme drinking. Yeah. I was extreme margaritas. I, yeah, I was sitting outside and there was uh, just one, one solitary drop of rain just landed, I think, on Larissa, who I was talking with at the time. And then that was it. And then it moved on. I, um, at the resort, we didn't, well, we had no idea of what was going to happen because it hasn't ever happened before. So we didn't know. I knew it wasn't going to be like hurricane winds by the time it got here because it would have been, you know, overland for so long. But we thought we might have 30, 40 mile an hour winds. We might be without power if trees came down, you know, on the power lines all over the place. They usually fix stuff pretty slow here. So we bought in a generator and about two weeks worth of drinking water. And now we're all set at the resort yeah, for we the got zombie it. apocalypse. It's just sitting there. <laughs> One little thing I was playing around with when the hurricane was coming through was a new little app, windytv.com. Yeah, isn't it beautiful? Yeah, it's just, if if nothing else, it's just a very beautiful overlay onto the earth of of current winds, current swell, current rainfall, and then forecasted. Yeah, it's really Um, cool. Just very, very dynamic. There's an iPhone and Android app as well, but uh, you can just go to the website. I'll put a link in the show notes, but that that was what me and Rue were pretty much glued to the entire two days while we were waiting for the hurricane to arrive. I feel like they should release it as a screensaver. That's what I was just about to say. I would, I would have that up on my computer all the time. Yeah, just the way that they've animated it all looks so smooth and, you know, it's all in real time. Yeah, and, and you to can watch the weather systems move around the world. And, and see so. how they interact with each other. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that happened to me this week, which was really cool, was I was on the Surf Mastery podcast. Yeah, you so got interviewed I'd, for it. Yeah, I'd like to say a big thank you to Mike Frampton. Really cool guy who uh, had me on the show and we talked about the coaching methodology that we use at Surf Simply and how it came about and our approach to things. It was a really interesting discussion. And it, it was afterwards, it was one of those discussions, you know, when you think of afterwards, you're like, ah, oh, damn it, I wish I'd said this and I wish I'd said that. You know, yeah. you keep thinking of things. Yeah, basically every time we record the podcast, I'm like, oh, I kind of thrown that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So listeners, we have like a better podcast that never gets recorded about an hour after each <laughs> podcast that gets recorded. What have you been up to, Will? I, well, in the podcast notes, I wrote lasted three days as vegan. Um, However, that's not uh, strictly true. Day one of being vegan, Mm -hmm. first thing I had, uh, fun fact everyone, milk comes from cows. Yeah. So I actually failed at the first hurdle. Um, (laughs) And then Thanksgiving rolled around. You couldn't possibly be expected to know that though. No, well, exactly. Yeah. Who who knew? Who knew? Milk, cows? Certainly I did. Who was the first guy to ever look at a cow and think... I'm going to go and try and squeeze its udder and see what that tastes like. You've seen that meme, haven't you, on the internet that says the first guy that had milk probably did some pretty weird shit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, rolling into the news. Quick roundup of the headlines over the last couple of weeks. Uh, The WSL has released the tour schedule for 2017 with no surprises and no particular changes other than a new headline sponsor from Corona for a couple of the events. We kind of say this every year, but I would really love if they included Karamas and Padang, and I would really love it if they ditched Rio. But I totally get that Rio is like a big, you know, money spinner. There's obviously a huge amount of following for surfing in Brazil. And also, I was trying to work out the dates with the swell seasons and how you mm-hmm. can move things around, and I, I couldn't figure out a way to do it. Rio is uh, Sakurima this year. Yeah. It got moved to a spot with slightly better waves. And I have Oi ditched sponsoring it it's the only one there on that list that's not with the company name i don't know if they've dropped maybe 
Next up, Billabong have reported uh, losses of 23.7 million over the financial year, adding to a total debt of 200 million, which is not looking particularly healthy. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, Patagonia have offered to donate 100% of their Black Friday sales to environmental charities, which is pretty cool. What do you think of when you think of Billabong? Because I read that headline and my immediate thought was like, yeah, Patagonia, pretty cool. And Billabong, I haven't bought a pair of Billabong things for ages and I haven't seen Mm -hmm. Billabong and thought that's really cool for a really long time. I think back to 2003. Well, that was the year (laughs) after Oki won his world title. I'm just thinking me in Billabong board shorts. Well, that's funny because I was going to say I think of Oki as being like, Oki surfing for Billabong and even yeah. before you know the, those Jack McCoy movies the Green Iguana like the 90s that's when I think of Billabong as being like super cool they had a pretty solid run in the mid 2000s too where they had AI they had Parco they had Taj Burrow yeah very long board shorts 23 inch outseam <laughs> lots <Yeah>. of chafe <laughs> <laughs> I had a really interesting conversation with one of our guests recently Thomas Hofgen who used to do a lot of photography for O'Neill and some other kind of extreme sports companies in the world of surf and snowboarding and we ended up having a really really fascinating conversation about the changing role of photography and film commercially for for those kind of companies over the last decade or so but I I was gonna get really into it now but maybe it's uh, we'll do it as a feature in a future episode what do you guys think I'm into that on the subject of photography Albie Layer has managed to land what is being called the first backside 540 Uh, although I still get very confused about rotations in surfing because it seems like they come down a different way around but anyway are you thinking because uh, i tell you what i thought i looked at it and i thought he's only turned one and a half times that's not two full 360s and then it took me about five <laughs> seconds to go oh, oh that's what 540 is that's why the video isn't called 720 <laughs> but here's the thing in order to land it whenever they call like a 360 in surfing mm-hmm. you're expected to land going forwards right but you take off going out to sea which means that you have to rotate through 540 degrees to land what we call a 360. And in order to land a fi- a, what's being called a 540, he actually has to do two full rotations yeah. in order to land backwards again. That's so true. It doesn't, I, I personally don't think it's a 540. I think it's a 720, which is even more impressive. I actually thought it was really cool seeing the little story of just how much it meant to him. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. because quite often in surf movies, you'll, you'll see suddenly just a really cool maneuver and then they'll you know, be the pro surfer who you all are used to seeing surfing amazingly, getting really excited and doing a little claim. And you're like, oh, he's pretty stoked with that, you know. Yeah. And actually having a whole like three or four minute movie, however long it was, where he's talking about how much he built up to it. And you see like how angry he's getting some of the surfs where he's not able to achieve it and how much it's making him like question himself and his self-worth. Yeah. You know, I thought it really made me realize what a big deal a single maneuver is for, you know, someone who's really focused on it. Yeah. Final bit of news is that all the nominations are now in for the various Surfer Poll awards that, that go alongside the, the personal nominations. So different movies and documentaries and stuff. We mentioned it very briefly last time, but all those nominations are up and the final ceremony will be broadcast live on the evening of Tuesday, December 6th, for those of you who are interested in the results. Do you remember when we did a bit of a review of the one where Noah Dean went a little off script on stage? Yeah. Got a little crazy. Yeah. I, there's a part of me that, like, when I heard him do that, I was like, oh, Noah Dean. But then there's part of me that's just like, I kind of like the unpredictable characters. I, I don't want a totally straight show where everyone's sensible. Yeah. You know? Um, did you see Noah Dean a couple weeks ago got approached by Stab and they offered him a bunch of money to do a feature on him where he took a month off of his party lifestyle and like did it clean cut and they would give him a trainer for a month. And he was just like, nah, man, <laughs> <laughs> I just definitely don't want to do that. In contest news, the Hawaiian pro at Haleiwa wrapped up with John John taking the win in some fairly spectacular conditions. Some pretty big waves through the middle of the event. Some very, very solid power surfing from John John finally taking the win. The Maui Women's Pro is currently halfway through. Uh, they surfed round one, round two, and then have had multiple lay days holding them off. But hopefully there is swell on the horizon, so that should be well worth watching. Quick prediction. Given John John's world title status and his performance and win at Haleiwa, he's got to be going into the next two events of the Triple Crown with his confidence just through the roof in a sort mm-hmm. of like, I'm just having fun. And, he, it, you know, that can make people pretty unbeatable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you think he's going to win the Triple Crown? Do you think he's going to win the Pint Masters? I think, uh, be I think a pretty cool finish to the year, wouldn't it? I think Triple Crown is, he'll wrap that one up for sure. Pint Masters will be a little harder. I hope he does. But yeah, Triple Crown, I'd bet the house on it. 
the reason I said Triple Crown and Pipe Masters is because I always think Sunset is just too wild to make any predictions on. There's just too many unknown factors. Did Mason get a wild card into Pipe? He would have been. It would have had to have been through Volcom Pipe Pro. It would have been a seeding in that event. I don't remember how he did. January was a long time ago. There are no wild cards from the Volcom Pipe Pro. Wow. For this year, there are two wild cards, which are as yet TBC. There's no... How 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 big's the field of the Pipe Masters this year? Absolutely stock standard. There's two wild card slots. No way. Yeah, no overlapping heats. Oh, that's a bummer. Because uh, that, uh, that's one of the things I really liked about the Pipe Masters was that in former years, it had a bit of a... Like the first two rounds were a lot of Hawaiian specialists. And it made the field a lot more interesting when it got to the main event. I wonder what happens if you do really well in the Haleva Pro and really well at Sunset and you're not in the Pipe Masters. And, and if you if you were to be able to do well at Pipe Masters, you're a kind of a shoe-in for the Triple Crown, but you just can't because you're not in it. Or do you get a wild card if you've won one of those two events? Or? Yeah, that used to be a definitely wild card. They definitely, yeah. any content, like a, the top contenders for the Triple Crown, they seeded them into the Pipe, but I guess not anymore. I think that the Pipe contest should be the triple crown are you, are you mean the volcom pipe pro should be yes the last yeah the triple crown not the billabong pipe masters yeah absolutely because the trip there's no reason why the triple crown has to be done and dusted by the end of 2016 mm-hmm. you know like because then it's it's open field like anyone can take part in all three events because you could you know a, a win at any event can take you from mid table to the top of the table yeah so you could do very very average at Haleiwa and sunset but if you then won pipe you know, that could put you right up to second or third in the overall ratings. And the Vulcan Pipe Pro just cleans up conditions-wise. They always get good waves. <laughs> yeah, Another great idea from the Cafe Fuel podcast team yes, here in indeed. Costa Rica. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. So I think the big news of the last week was Dane Reynolds releasing his first film in a year and the first full feature film in a while. It was called Chapter 11. He released it on Monster Children and Stab Mag last week, and it was really good. I really liked the multiple reference with Chapter 11. Oh, like his that was first awesome. movie being the first yeah. chapter was his first movie, the Chapter 11 being the, the U.S. filing for bankruptcy. Like, yeah. There's just so much. As a man who appreciates a good pun, I thought you might like that one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that was the bankruptcy thing. I remember the, yeah. in the video Hildeberg Clinton. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Hildeberg Clinton referencing that. I That's think that yeah, was chapter eleven. Hasn't been in the news much, so I'm not sure <laughs> what I know. Yeah, chapter eleven is filing for bankruptcy right. in, in the US. In the That's US. very clever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. super clever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, basically, it was Dane Reynolds' magnum opus. It was a, a, a 37 minute memoir outlining his career from uh, moving to the coast from. Bakersfield, California, which is pretty far inland, all the way to becoming arguably the best and and definitely the most popular surfer in the world, to then subsequently quitting the world tour right as he was renegotiating a you know a historically large contract with Quicksilver, uh, and the pressure they put on him afterwards to perform and how that led to some pretty serious panic attacks and what seemed like sort of falling off the world stage. What I loved about it is how human a picture it painted of him, and and especially because he was, by all accounts, a, a bit of an outlier in the surf industry for his whole career. The, the thing I really like you, you were saying about how it paints him as very human was I, I wasn't aware of any of the the mental illness problems that he was dealing with Yeah, through all of this. One way or another, it never made it into the surf media. And the impression that you got from the surf media, from commentators on the WSL when he did do events and things like that was, uh, you know, Dane just doesn't try, like he's just dropped out, he's lazy, he's fat, he's drinking, Yeah. you know, he doesn't care. He's just taking his checks and doing nothing. And it, I thought that was a, a brave thing to, to, you know, go out and talk about the problems that he was having and to, to bring it forward with what he was actually going through while we were all ripping him off. I think that when anyone comes forward... Uh, and talks about psychological problems that they've had, it's just incredibly important. Quite often you'll hear psychologists and neurologists uh, get very annoyed when they hear people throwing around the expression, oh, it's just in so-and-so's head, as if that your head is somehow not part of your body, and problems that you're having in your head are in some way not real, which just is not the case. And there's such a stigma about psychological problems as opposed to physical problems. You know, a lot of people would think, 
you know, he, even he in the film, he's like, your friends go, I'll oh, just pull yourself together, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, you wouldn't say that if someone had a broken leg. You wouldn't be like, I'll oh, just pull yourself together. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just because it's not, you can't physically see what the issue is, it, it doesn't make it any less tangible, any less real, and any less difficult to deal with. So, I mean, even broadly, you know, outside the world of surfing, I think whenever someone can come forward and talk, yeah. Honestly and frankly, I think it's really important. So hats off to Dane Reynolds just for, for making the statement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he even said in, in there, didn't he, that had he been aware that to have panic attacks like this is not abnormal and there is treatment for it, you know, would have made dealing with the situation a whole lot easier for him. So, you know, just, just putting it out in a public forum that, that there are other people with those problems. Yeah. Going back to the intro quickly, I loved the, the first chapter clips in the intro section. When, when the first chapter came out, was that a big thing for you guys? Were you kind of paying attention to what he was doing at that time? Because like, for me, I, I loved the movie so much. And actually, and you'll probably disagree with me about this quite passionately, Asher, but I'm just really not into a lot of the soundtracks that Dane Reynolds chooses. Mm-hmm. And I remember locking myself in my caravan in Cornwall for three days and remixing the whole of the first chapter to like UK-based electronica. I still have your remix of Do first you? chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First I've chap- got it on a hard drive it's somewhere. Good, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> First chapter was like when it came out. It was released in 2006, so I was I was 14 years old, and I I must have watched it three times a day every day for a year. Was, I, it, it was it was like the the biggest thing in my life at the time. Was first chapter pre or post Young Guns? Post Young Guns. Post Young Guns. Post right, okay. Young Guns, but pretty close. Yeah, pretty close yeah, to he, it. He did Young Guns and then first chapter. And then kind of all of this stuff happened that he talks about in this movie. Yeah, yeah, it, it pretty much talks about his ascension to stardom. I mean, try to imagine putting yourself in his shoes and I think it was 2012 when he quit the world tour full time. I mean, he was he was the most popular surfer in the world and he was fourth in the world. And at that point, it's pretty easy for a company to put a number on you. I mean, if if, if your contest results dictate your paycheck, then it's pretty linear, you know, you'd you're doing well in the contest. You're doing well in the company's eyes. I mean, that's what like a guy like Clohe does. And when you step away from that, your whole value to the company becomes really intangible. You know, uh, are you putting out interesting content? And then what is interesting? What keeps people interested? How do you keep reinventing yourself? How do you make this project different from the last one? And then it it, it really wore on him. You know, I think that from Quicksilver's point of view, or from any surf brand's point of view what you probably need to do is find someone that is doing their thing and then say to yourself, what they're doing is is what what we want representing the face of our mm-hmm. brand. It's in line with our brand. And then you your hands off and you let them do their thing. I think that to put your free surfers, your, your kind of the non-competitive uh, faces of your brand out there and expect them to mold themselves to what you want your brand to be seen as is to put them in a, in a really impossible and unfair situation. Yeah, it's sort of the the whole game changed after the financial crisis too. I mean, he re- he negotiated this contract that was huge, and Quicksilver saying, "Yeah, man, we'll do whatever you want. You're you're the most popular guy in the world." And then all of a sudden, Quicksilver, which is a publicly traded company, didn't have the capital for that investment. And it talks about in the movie going to Dane and being like, "Hey, look, man, this is kind of what happens. Either." we re- renegotiate your contract or all these people get fired. And he said that he was all for renegotiating the contract and he went through with that. And then all the people they talked about uh, that they were going to save got axed anyway. Oh. The average profit margin in the apparel business, like across the board, you know, outside of surf brands is, you know, eight to 13%, mm. which is really, really a tiny margin to make a profit out of. Mm. And I mean, I, I think in within the surf brand industry, just from the research that I've done in terms of sourcing clothes and pricing and everything, you know, it's more than that. It's that there's more like kind of the 30, 40, 50%, which kind of makes smaller companies more sustainable. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you're trying to compete on price when it comes to clothes and you're a surf brand as opposed to, you know, H&M or, you know, Target or something like that, mm-hmm. it's it's just a really difficult business to be in. I, I There's a lot of people, you know, we see a lot of small surf brands open up all the time and people are always getting in touch asking us to sort of, you know, mention them and promote them on our, on our Facebook pages mm-hmm. and whatnot. And uh, yeah, it's just so hard. If you're out there thinking about starting up a surf brand, listeners, just really do the numbers before you sink yeah. too much money into it. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I, th- I think it would have been so easy for uh, a movie of this style to h- almost come across 
as a bit whiny, but it just, what was so cool is it just totally didn't. And it was a really good story, which I don't think has been told for a while. And then it segued pretty interestingly in the end, uh, after the credits, there was a little teaser for his new brand, which so, is Rising. Okay, so we were just talking about this before the show came on. We were watching the teaser for his new brand. And Harry and I, the grandpas of Sir Simony Podcast, were like, oh, we hate the editing. We hate the music. Yeah. We hate the pink filter. And you were like frothing over it. Like, I was I'm, like, I'm yeah, it's first. insane. <laughs> it looks so cool. So, so just like that, there is that vibe all the way through the movie, as with a lot of Dane's other projects of like very lo-fi, a lot of retro video being used. It was really nice in this one to see some really high quality footage in there as well. But what did you guys think of just the movie as a surf movie, the surfing section well, of the production? That was exactly my thought was that I think this is the first time in, I can't remember how long that I've been able to watch Dane Reynolds in clean, unmucked around with 1080 footage. What uh, about, I what about Sampler, which came out earlier this year? I think it was almost exactly a year ago and it was all shot in red. Sampler was shot in really good quality, but it seemed to have only been shot in a couple of locations and it didn't really feel like a surf movie. It more felt like here's a few sessions with film that we yeah. put out. You know what well, I, mean? I think that one was about 10 minutes and this was yeah. 37 minutes. Yeah. yeah, so this was more like a proper sort of feature-length movie. Yeah. I'll I tell you what the standout bit for me was, me and Will were just watching it before we hit record, but that slab that he's surfing, in the, if you go forward to about 18 minutes in, oh. um, and he's surfing that, that right-hand slab where you just see them first of all just getting smashed for like the first minute like mm. no one making it and then you, you see dane make one we were we were trying to figure it out before we were yeah that's at the, the, the that's puerto background. rico the whole section's puerto rico yeah it's the one that, that what's the other movie where they went and surfed that what was the yeah when we're getting classic ones getting classic volume two and yeah. they did that whole section with the Godowskis brothers on that same like slabby wave i thought it was cool in stab's article some of the comments that other surfers were making. That was a really interesting article. I love, uh, there was, Mick Fanning said, people think that free surfers just put out clips and don't worry too much about it, but it's putting a piece of yourself out there to be criticized. And, you know, actually, when I was talking with Mike Frampton for the Surf Mastery podcast, we were sort of having a conversation about um, surfing's the criteria. Mm -hmm. uh, and I sort of highlighted how I, I always strikes me slightly ironic that the competitive surfers who are trying to surf the wave in the most difficult way with speed and power and flow in the most critical part of the wave are being sometimes referred to as sort of the sellout guys. Yeah. And then the free surfers are like the sole guys who are keeping it real. Whereas actually the free surfers are really trying to get their photo taken. Mostly that's practically what their job is or, mm -hmm. or at least get videoed, uh, which is, you know, you, it's sort of less soulful in a way than trying to surf the wave really well. It, that, that, you know, that sort of sounds a little bit derogatory towards free surfers, um, which is not meant to be. I just sort of think it's ironic. But I think what Mick Fanning says is really true. Do you know when you're a kid at school and you have to write an essay and they tell you you've got to write an essay about this and you can do it? And then every now and again, they're like, you can write about anything you want. And those are way the harder. Mm -hmm. You know, surfing in contests, you go out there, you've got your 20 minutes, the cameras are on you. You know, as a free surfer, yeah, you are trying to create these little pieces of art, but there's, there's no parameters. Where are you going to go? Like, are you going to go big waves, small waves? What kind of boards are you going to ride? There's all of this stuff. And yeah, like Mick Fanning says, you're really putting yourself out there to be criticized. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you that that's the difficult part about being the free surfer. They always get the bad rap of kind of like, oh man, they don't have to care about anything. But you have to be making content that is continuously interesting people. I mean, at the end of the day, your your job is to sell a product. And you have to be just interesting people with the what you're producing. So it, that involves reinventing yourself a lot, which I think Dane has been king of. I mean, he started out being the young phenom. Um, he did really well on the world tour. He had my favorite heat of all time, him against Parco in the semifinals at Snapper Rocks. Mm -hmm. And Parco had two nines. And Dane still just wiped the floor with him. The surfing was just night and day. It, it looked like you know 1960s versus the momentum generation or something. Yeah. But, uh, and then after his world tour, he, he started riding really interesting boards. You remember the sperm whale? He's got a really iconic photo of him riding a block of foam. Yeah, he, he's kind of just been the king about keeping us interested. Yeah, that, I think that's true. I, I think that the two sort of things that struck me as possibly slightly negatives about the movie, or not really negatives, but, um, you know, the one thing is, is it really stuck out to me that he didn't really have a mentor you know going through his professional life he, he didn't mm -hmm. have anyone who just had 
20 years of experience who didn't have all the cultural baggage of having come from Ventura and having the and having all of the anti-establishment surfing kind of rhetoric in his ear growing up and and someone who was business savvy and wasn't part of Quicksilver and actually was just able to stand back and help him make some decisions and think about long-term mm. stuff. Any young competitive surfer, I think, if you're able to find someone who can fill that role for you, you're very fortunate. Um, the other thing is, and this is a very minor criticism of Dane, because I do think it's a great movie and I love the story, but there's just the closing section that he does and... I felt watching the movie like, okay, what's, he, what's his takeaway from this? And what's he going to do next? Because it's all very well to just say, as he does, I want to live with integrity and I don't want to have my self-worth dictated to me by a, by a company. I totally get that. I totally respect that. But, you know, he's a professional surfer and I am really interested in what's he actually going to do like business-wise. What's he going to do for his career? I mean, it's, it's very easy to just say, I'm going to go and free surf and have fun with it. But I think he segues that in beautifully because he talks at the end. He's like, ah, oh, I want to produce stuff I'm proud of. And then it has the credits. Yeah. And then at the end, it, it, it puts the, the ad for former, which is what he's doing next. That's him and Craig Anderson. That's their project. Yeah. That yeah, is the life okay. after. That's I, the life after Quicksilver. I, I would have liked. Uh, I guess I would have liked to hear him talk about his new brand a bit more because personally, I find that kind of stuff so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the slight negative comment I was going to make about him was just one little thing he said when he said, uh, "I don't want to have my self worth dictated to me by some guy sitting in a room pushing around numbers," which I just felt was a slightly lazy stereotype. Of the you know the kind of people that are trying to trying to run a business, which mm-hmm. have all got their own like hopes and dreams and fears, and they're humans who are trying to make this business work. Anyway, I, I just and I just felt like that was a the man in the suit is the bad guy kind of stereotype, and it was like, come on, Dane, you can do a bit better than that. And having just started a company, and he is about to be that person. They are presu- you know, if <laughs> yeah. the company is successful, they presumably intend to take on some team riders, and he will be the man behind the desk pushing the numbers deciding someone's self-worth. Uh, I would love to hear him actually talk a little bit about, well, this was my experience working for Quicksilver. If I was in that position, or as I hope I will be taking on team riders, you know, these are the things I wouldn't do. This is how I would let them breathe creatively. Um, so I don't know if you guys read the article recently in Surfer Mag by Justin Hausman. Uh, it's titled A Case for Off the Rack Surfcraft. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks a little bit about sort of his experiences with getting custom shapes and buying off-the-rack surfboards. And he basically comes to a conclusion throughout the piece that he is tired of getting custom boards. The wait time, he actually references something interesting where he ordered a car from Japan, which was custom in terms of the... Certain specs, the, like the interior yeah, and the exactly. stereo and things and, like that. Uh, it came something like three weeks earlier than his surfboard did from a local shaper. Yeah, um, I, I'm totally, I'm in total agreement with him, I, and uh, this has been a, a like an argument that you and I have had over the years, Harry. Yeah. But you know, I I've ordered so many boards, and reading there was there was a few articles that have come out recently. Actually, mm-hmm. um, we're all kind of on the same subject. Some leaning a little bit in one direction, some leaning with another direction. But the the two things that came out the most was number one, like the time, and you just don't know when your board's coming, and number two, you don't really know if the board is gonna be what exactly you asked for. And I've had so many boards that I've asked for that have not been quite what I've asked for. And I'd much rather buy them, not only off the rack, I'd much rather buy off the website a model that I know the volume, I know all of the specs, and I know when it breaks, I can get another one. And if I want to go up a few liters or down a few liters or, you know, change the mm-hmm. dims a little bit, I can. Yeah, I'm, I'm, having said all that, you know, I was talking last episode about the board I got from Malcolm Campbell, and that was a really cool experience. But I do think that's different. You know, that's like more like buying a, a vintage car. You know, yep. it was a it, piece of art, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You surfed that last night. How did I you did. like it? It was very fun. Um, so what I've, having read that article, what I've done is I've categorized or I've, I've sourced options that I want you guys to perhaps either agree or throw in some of your own ideas. So there's mm-hmm. four, I think, four places we can get surfboards from. Okay, so there's off the rack, which could be a local surf shop. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a online retailer, kind of the same thing, you know, either Sunrise Surfshop or Lost or Channel Islands. They all all have these websites that you can pretty much order whatever board they mm-hmm. have in whatever size they produce them. Uh, another option is off the rack at a shop like Mollusk or Deus or Almond, something that's a little bit more special, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, that maybe feels like a one-off, but actually it's still an off the rack. You've had no say on the customization; it's just a surfboard mm-hmm. that you like and bought. Then we go on to the custom shapes. So 
commonly you might go to a local shaper there's no prestige with the name it's just a guy who shapes boards who you might know from surfing your local break um, and then you get the kind of celebrity shaper or a-list shaper like the ryan birches the tyler warrens the skip fries where you get something that is perhaps not only a one-off um, but also you've had some kind of input uh, with the with the process and i wanted you guys to i've personally never had a custom board i've only ever bought off the rack and my opinion on the whole thing or my advice really is the only reason off the rack might not suit is if you don't know what kind of board would suit you in the first place um, so i think you know in, in this case information is power um, and maybe in the past people haven't been choosing the right boards relative to their surf break their style you know i i personally have a type of board that i prefer to ride but it doesn't mean i necessarily have to go to a custom shaper to get exactly what i want mm -hmm. i think surfing is unique in that uh, and listeners if you can think of an exception to this i i would love to hear it because i've said this to a lot of people and nobody yet has given me a, a similar situation in another sport in that as a regular day-to-day -day athlete, you know, none of us are sponsored. None of us are getting money from going out and surfing. But we have the same access to custom equipment that pro-level riders do. I think that's completely unique to surfing. I don't know of any other sport where that is the case. And not only do we have the same access that the pros do, but actually it is in oftentimes cheaper than off-the-peg equipment. You know, if, if you were to buy an off-the-peg Almeric or Lost board, it's probably going to be more expensive than having a board custom-made by a local shaper. Yeah. Imagine trying to get carbon-pressed skis from a local carbon fiber shaper. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or, or a mountain bike or a tennis racket or anything like that. You know, it just doesn't exist. Uh, am I being stupid? Surely all of those things, tennis, golf, mountain bike, skis, you can buy the same equipment the pros are using? No, you, they, theirs are not off-the-peg. There's a custom-made for them. They may lay further down the line, release the Roger Federer tennis racket, but you cannot go to Slashinger and say, can I have a custom tennis racket? I can go and buy a Dane Reynolds model surfboard off the yeah. rack, but I can also go to Almeric and say, will you shape me a Harry Knight board? Right, right. I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, yeah. and, and, and this is the only sport I know where as regular go-to athletes, we have that access to custom equipment for less than the price of off-the-peg equipment. So one of the arguments that you hear throughout all of the different articles that that I was reading on this subject make the same point and I, and I don't think it's valid which is that by going to a local shaper and talking to them about your surfing and their knowledge of the local waves in the area they are therefore going to know what your board should be like and I don't think that that's the case because you know, one of the biggest problems that we have that I feel like we solve really efficiently, but I've become very aware of is the difficulty that everyday surfers have, even very experienced ones, have in communicating what their surfing is like and what the limiting factors in their surfing yeah. are, you know, via email, via multiple phone calls. And, you know, we give all of our guests the vocabulary to help them describe to us where they're at. But even then they arrive and on day one, we give them a bunch of drills to do and you know we've thought about it really carefully so that we can isolate as efficiently as possible what the limiting factors in their surfing are you know and, and that's just the very beginning and that allows us to start having some idea of, of where to begin the coaching process now there is just zero chance that someone can walk in talk to a local shaper who let's be honest probably doesn't do much coaching probably has never seen footage of that person surfing and that shaper is going to have some idea about what kind of board that person should be riding and, and shape it accordingly. That, and that's that's one of the main reasons that I read people giving for going to a local shaper. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the problem exists whether you're buying from a, a shaper or off the peg. You know, you're going to have the same problem whether you're talking to the shaper or the guy in the surf shop. But yeah, it, it, I don't think that you can isolate that as a, an individual benefit because someone who knows their way around surfboards just working in a surf shop with the 30 or 40 boards they have available in the shop should be able to give you similar advice. I think, yeah, I completely agree with both of you on that point. And I think one of the differences perhaps going to a shaper or going to a shop is that if you go to a shop and you have a rack of boards, if you know you want a, a white performance short board, mm -hmm. uh, you can go to any shop and they'd be 50 in a row and you can go and feel them all. You can feel yeah. the rows because a lot of these, you know, the, the, we can, sure, we can measure volume and length, uh, the, you know, width of a 
squash tail or whatever it is, but actually things like rocker and the rail shape, there is no necess- there is no metric for, for that. And so, is yeah, that the right word? Yeah, they're, I mean, they're compound curves. You know, you, you can't yeah. describe a rocker in anything other than it, it's it's kind of soft. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, I, you know, I feel like I've got a little bit of knowledge on, on what affects, what, what characteristics are necessary for me to enjoy a session or, or mm-hmm. what kind of surfboard I like. And I've, I'm lucky enough to be, so simply we have a, uh, our joint quiver is probably in the hundreds of boards between us all. And so we can go and feel rails and see what we like and dislike on boards we like and dislike. And I can then go into a shop and, and compare them it, you know, with actually physically feeling those boards rather than having to rely on a shaper to, to, again, to communicate with me what he thinks a rail should be given the information I've just provided to him of my own surfing or needs. I think one of the best things that anyone can do for their, you know, for moving forwards, whether you're going to buy off the rack or custom, is just try and get your hands on as many boards as possible and go out and surf them. Yeah, hundred uh, percent, absolutely. And narrow down the selection is, you know, when when you are choosing the next board, you actually have some real data to go from as to what you like and don't like about a surf you know if you're lucky if you're you're in the states or you're in europe through the summer a lot of the the bigger companies do demo days and they just rock up with a truck full of surfboards you leave your credit card or your driving license you can go out catch three waves on this board come in swap over most surf shops i know don't mind like if you rent what rent a board from them for a day they don't mind if you come back at lunchtime and swap it out so you can go away for a weekend and, and you could surf your boards but if there's a good surf shop in town that's got a good quiver of, of boards, just like spend 30 or 40 bucks, whatever it costs to rent the board for the day and try three different boards over the, over three different sessions. And, and I would even say like not even just slightly different boards, but like very different boards. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest coaching challenges that we have is a lot of experienced surfers who come and stay with us have only surfed boards that are like very slightly different, like a litre more, quarter of an inch wider or thinner here. Yeah. I mean, like jump on a seven foot, an eight foot and a five four, you know, yeah. just right, really mix it up. You, you, you'll be amazed how all of those different boards will really benefit your surfing. Yeah. And, and remember as well, it, you're not looking for the right board for you. That as a, a, as a concept is misnomer. It doesn't exist. So it's not like in Harry Potter where the wand chooses the wizard. It's absolutely <laughs> not like <laughs> Harry Potter. Damn. <laughs> the other thing is that one of the arguments you hear uh, put forward a lot is that you, you can't necessarily get quite what you want from an off-the-rack board or a, you know buying online, and therefore you go to a shaper and they can make exactly what you want. But I mean, honestly, and I'm just thinking this out loud, but what, f- how many shortboards do Firewire do? Just different models, what, like 10 or 15 or something? If Firewire have got like, they've got 15 or so sort of shortboards of various sizes, even if there's only one or two high performance ones. And then Channel Island have got another 30, mm-hmm. something like that. I don't know how many Lost have got, let's say another 15. Mm-hmm. You take any, the other like four or five big surf brands out there. You've probably got like a hundred, at least a hundred shortboards, and that's just shortboards. That's not like mouths and fun boards and fishes and all the rest of it to choose from. Now, it, it, like, are you honestly saying that you're so good at surfing that none of those hundred boards, <laughs> uh, like all of those, are going to hold you back, and you have to get one made especially for you? I, I just don't yeah. buy that. I, I think that the interesting thing with surfing is that at the end of the day, there is a huge subjectivity to it and and I I don't think this is unique to surfing it's probably true you know we took uh, tennis rackets or golf clubs what one person likes another person is going to hate and it's not because either one is better or worse than the other it's just because it it feels right to you coming as someone that that for five or six years um, you know I had a, a pretty running relationship with a shaper and I had probably 10 or 15 boards from him and each time was going back, tweaking, modifying. I think what is really nice is, yeah, there probably is, of all those hundred shortboards, one of them probably is better even than the board that I ended up with at the end of that sort of 15-board run. But I don't have the opportunity to go and surf all hundred shortboards and work out which one it is. And even narrowing it down and saying, okay, well, I like boards with a little bit more rocker in the tail. Okay, so get rid of all of those. Now, out of these, well, I like a board with a bit of a thicker rail. Okay, get rid of those. I'm still going to be left with five or six short boards. And the final intangible thing, that that subjectivity that makes me say, yeah, this is the one, is going to be really hard for me to pin down. And exactly as you said, there's no guarantee that going to a shaper is going to produce the perfect board because several of the boards that came out of that 15-board run 
maybe weren't ideal. They didn't come out quite as I'd imagined them or they got glassed in a funny way or, or whatever. But the process was incredibly enjoyable for me of working out what it is that I like in a board, you know, going through that. And I, I feel very lucky to have had that experience and to, to go through and actually been tutored into using the shaping software to tweak the boards that I was riding and play around with them. Having the board shaped for me and my name being under the glass and me having had an input into it and the colour being the colour that I chose, you know, to a certain extent, actually, when I put it under my arm, that does affect you on a subjective level. You know, if, 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 if a car is the right colour, it feels nicer when you drive it. And there's, there's nothing that you can do about that. That's just how the human brain works. And I, I think owning a surfboard that you know someone has crafted around you maybe makes you more inclined. On a realistic level, on a, you know, if we could put hard and fast data to it, there's probably no difference to any of those off-the-peg shortboards, but it's my board. Just to, to quote Justin, he says, I finally mercifully learned that a board ain't going to be magic just because it has my name on the stringer. Yeah. <laughs> so, there we go. Harry's not reached that point yet. No, not yet. <laughs> I think there's two really interesting uh, like takeaways from what you just said. One is that if you're trying to think of the most practical, functional, time-efficient, cheapest way to get the best board for you to perform on, I think it's very difficult to make a case for arguing for going to a, a local shaper versus buying off the rack. Mm -hmm. But the experience of ordering the board and you know the whole narrative of what you just described as a learning experience and an enjoyable experience, I think is really valuable. My, my dad had this belief that there were no good cars made after 1945 because that's yeah. where uh, that's when cars started being made, you know, by the sort of conveyor belt system rather than just a team of guys coming in and making a, making a car like from the ground up, just them, you know, and, and he, he would rebuild old cars. And I didn't, you know, no one would argue that those cars are better than modern cars or that if you want a car, the best way to do it is to uh, start by building your own car and tweaking it and building another one and tweaking it. I mean, you mm -hmm. would just go to the shop and buy a car. But, you know, that's not to detract from that process. I think that's really important. I think the other takeaway from what you said is, you know, you, you talked about how subjectively you're not really sure whether that board is right for you and, mm -hmm. and you want to have a conversation with your shaper about that. And it just reminded me of, of one of the things that I wished I had brought up in my conversation with Mike Frampton. So when I was at art college, yeah, I may have said this in the show before, but the, the, the tutor that I was working with particularly was like, you know, you guys are pretty young. You don't have very much creative to say. What I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you how to use paint, use canvas, use metal, use wood, mm. use, a, use a camera. And then once you've mastered those practical objective skills, you've got the tools to go out and express yourself creatively. I, I think that regardless of whether people are buying custom boards or off the rack boards, too many surfers use buying a new board and blaming the dimensions of their board as a proxy for learning those objective skills to surf better and in the process actually ultimately get less joy out of the sport. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I have, and I'm, I know that you and every one of you listeners, I know this is true of you as well. You've thought, if, if, if I get this next board, I'm going to suddenly surf a lot better. <laughs> And then you get it and you slowly have the realization that you, you don't. And then you're like, well, if I get this next board, I'm going to suddenly surf a lot better. That's a point worth making, you know. Often the board, you know, what was that in Fair Bits where Kelly Slater goes out on a door yeah. and gets a nice little barrel? I think yeah. there's a nice lesson in that for all of us. Harry and I were speaking when we finished our Indo trip. Wade Hall, our guide out there. Who's moving to Nosara. Who he is, just met, emailed me the other day. Absolutely. And we can't wait for Wade to arrive here. Um, he he shaped his own boards pretty much, am I right in saying they're f out of snapped longboards or whatever foam he could find at the time? Yeah, they looked like it. They're yeah, the, they did. They were the ugliest <laughs> boards I've ever Man, seen. They were ugly things. You know, he'd, he'd maybe paid some attention to the shape or the outline, but not a lot to say rocker and, and, and yeah. width and things like that. And, and yet he was, he was probably the best surfer out at every break we went to. Yeah. He, he charges. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say if, if like a new channel Island sitting in the rack is a supermodel, then Wade's boards are like a homeless guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, yes. You could compare them in that way. <laughs> I don't know if I would, but never mind. Um, but so really the, the, you know, what we can take from that is focus on your surfing and don't get too wrapped up on, on the board under your feet. 
Yeah, I think so as well. The the I, I think going back to your original point, Will, the the you know the four sort of streams of of going from from a custom prestige shape to a you know just a real off the peg in the local surf shop. I think that there, there are all those different things, and and since we've had that easy access to the firewire boards. I love the fact now that I have that easy access down here to a shape that I can rely on the fact has been through a severe quality control that it is to shape as it was meant to be that the rails are going to be the same thickness the glassing is going to be to the same grade you know every when I order that board I know exactly what I'm getting and and almost certainly the next board that I order will probably be along those lines whether it's a firewire or not I don't know because that's the bummer with the local shaper is if you even if you do get a magic board like getting another one the same is always pretty tough yeah but at the other end of the spectrum you know that, that like you say there is that that sort of prestige end where this is someone for whatever reason or whether it's jerry lopez shaping your 1970s gun uh or ryan birch shaping you a little rainbow colored twin fin that is a piece of of art a piece of surf history almost that yeah okay it's functional you can go out and ride it in the same way you can drive a classic car but you know, a classic car is going to spend most of its time in the garage, and I feel like a, a prestige board like that goes on the wall for most of the year, even if it just gets pulled down once or twice. Okay, so quick question for you both: If you could get one board off one shaper, you know, who, which shaper, which board? It'd be what Harry just said. It'd be the Rainbow Fish that Ryan Birch shaped and surfed in Psychic Migrations. It's like a four ten twin fin, something like yeah. that. It's beautiful. What about you, H bomb? Man, it'd be pretty hard to turn down a Lopez lightning bolt yeah that's i mean he still say. shapes them uh, but they're five grand a piece but yeah it would be pretty hard to turn one of those down a red like seven six lopez pipe gun with a white lightning bolt on it yeah. would be pretty amazing to have, <laughs> have hanging out. it'd be nice to have a skip fry fish as well and a mm. mark richards twin fin and it would be nice to have a simon anderson all white round tail thruster with yeah. no deck pad on it that would yeah. be pretty cool. i feel like although it'd be lovely to have that lopez single fin I don't know if my surfing is at a caliber where I can have that on the wall and justify it being there. Yeah. Whereas, like, maybe an MR twin fin would be, you know, that's a board that I could legitimately pull down and, you know, go and have some fun on on the occasional days. Um, so my advice to anyone who's currently making that decision as to whether to get a custom shape, something special, a piece of art, or just an everyday surfboard is really to to isolate those reasons. Do you want a piece of art? You know, are you going to get that Jerry Lopez gun? It, you might not necessarily surf it how it's expected to be surfed but if it's a piece of art it's a wonderful thing then that's not uh, something to be shy about uh, having said that if you're just a, a, a typical surfer if you surf the same board every single day at the same beach break then there's probably an off the rack board that suits you as well and you don't need to attach ego to that process off the rack boards are great and have purpose you're listening to the surf simply podcast Going into the listener emails, uh, thank you all of you for the emails you've sent to us. Uh, we don't have time to do all of them on this episode, but we will try and squeeze them in over the next couple of weeks. And just a reminder again, if you would like to send us an audio file of your question, if you'd like to read your question into your phone, we can then plug that in and, and you can speak to the world. Uh, it's just a little more fun than us reading out your uh, your emailed questions. Joseph McDevitt, this is you via my voice. <laughs> Hi there, really enjoying the latest batch of podcasts, keeping up the good work. I was wondering if you could address the following topic in a future podcast. Recently, Harry, Asher and Rue all have discussed surfing some of the heavier spots near Guiones on big days, pulling out step-up boards and charging double overhead waves. I'd really appreciate a few minutes on the psychology of charging, how to build confidence in bigger waves, what it takes to throw yourself over the ledge and what mentally or physically we can do to become better at coping with situations outside our comfort zone. Many thanks. So this is a really interesting question and I almost feel like we could do a whole episode on this. But um, I, I think that the key points to take away is that there's not any one magic quick fix. There's not a do this and you will have the secret weapon for surfing big waves. It's just there's a bunch of different factors and if you can do all of them well, op optimize for all of them, then you know they all build on top of each other and, and gradually you get, the pro you get to the process of not just surfing big waves, but as we've talked about on the show before, stretching your own comfort zone. Because we, we all go out and surf waves that are, for us, the biggest waves we've been in, by definition. We're, we're all in that experience as surfers, whether that means head-high waves or 60-foot waves. I think that you get the most out of being a surfer 
if you've got good mechanisms in place for dealing with pushing your comfort zone whenever the opportunity presents itself. And that means that as your life goes on, you're, you're surfing more and more and more different kinds of surf rather than shying away from those opportunities. So here, here's a couple of the things that either we use a lot in coaching that we've seen have been very helpful for people um, and also a couple that I just personally find helpful, which you know brings me on to another aspect of this, which is that everyone is a little bit different and which one of these things you want to particularly address depends on what it is that's a, a big fear factor for you in waves. I mean, just for example, uh, I've worked with people who are really intimidated by the reef and they're super comfortable going out in double, triple, you know, four times overhead waves um, at, a, at a sort of a deep water surf spot. Um, but, you know, as soon as they're on a shallow reef break, they're really intimidated and people for whom the exact opposite is true and have got no problem at all surfing over reefs. But the idea of being in really deep water and being held down for a long time is terrifying. So, you know, actually sitting down with you one on one and, and chatting with you or, or, you know, whoever your mentor is, listeners, when you're surfing and figuring out what, what's the thing for you kind of tells you which one of these things you want to address. Um, one of the really common things that we find helps is actually addressing the understanding of the mechanism of the wave you know so for example actually swimming out with a mask on and with fins on and swimming under waves and really looking at what's going on underneath the water knowing how close you can be to the wave under the water without a board that's where you're going to get sucked up and pulled over the falls uh, how deep you can be how, how close you can get away with being to it demystifying everything that's going on underneath the wave helps a huge amount the years that i spent doing water photography helped me a lot surfing those same waves on bigger days because everything that was going on under the ocean just made complete sense and it stopped it being uh, frightening so you know that's something that has worked for me and that we use a lot and another thing is is getting really good with psychological calming techniques it absolutely blows my mind how your body physically changes depending on what you choose to think about in your head and yeah. it sounds kind of like wafty you know, hippie stuff, but it, it's really incredible. You, you can sit there and feel, let's say, just neutral and choose consciously to think about something very stressful. And the idea that that would make your heart speed up and, you know, make you start sweating and feeling anxious, right in that second will seem laughably ridiculous. But if you choose to think about that stressful thing for a minute or two, your heart will start pumping, you'll start sweating it's incredible how powerful the effect is and the reverse is true and so while often you hear people talking about closing their eyes breathing and choosing to think about something really calm and you kind of think oh yeah yeah but that's not really going to work it, it will blow your mind how powerful it is i know uh, kelly slater famously talked about being out at big chopu a couple of years ago and how he would close his eyes and imagine himself sitting on the sofa watching netflix so it, you know it depends where, what you where your calm place is that's something I use during long hold downs as well, you know. Some, something I always really enjoy is rapping when I'm going along in my car. So sometimes when I get, have a big hold down, I'll just start like rapping a whole Public Enemy song in my head and I'll just see how far I can get through it. <laughs> and I'm thinking about, you know, the chorus and then suddenly I'm back up on the surface again. It's kind of like that idea of outward expression influences inward emotion. That yeah. smile to make you happy sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. a really good example. Richard Wiseman's written a really good cool, uh, book about psychology, debunking a lot of self-help industry myths. Uh, and he cites a lot of studies in there, which, which I really like rather than just making these statements. And he talks mm -hmm. about that study yeah. where people were holding a pencil in their mouth just to force their face into a smile and, uh, and how it actually changed how they felt quite pronouncedly. Personally, I, I've got quite a kind of logical brain and I really like logical hooks. I really like knowing a fact is demonstrably and objectively true. And then I know that no matter how my emotions are going up and down, I can sort of hang my sanity on that logical hook. Uh, so one that I personally use a lot in, in when I'm out surfing bigger waves and waves that are big for me and I feel intimidated by is I'll look at guys out there who are really, really comfortable. So, you know, for example, and I've talked about this in the show before, but in recent memory for me, surfing Chopu a couple of years ago was was by far the most intimidating experience I've been in. John John was out there at the same time along with a bunch of his friends just looking super casual. Watching those guys wiping out as well as making waves because they weren't by any means making all the waves they took off on. Watching them get smashed, come up, kind of have a laugh about it and paddle back out. And, and I'm thinking, you know what, I'm actually physically made out of the same stuff that those guys are. And that's true when those Laura Enova's out 
throwing herself over the ledge at 60 foot jaws. I mean, she, she's not made out of titanium. She's not Wolverine. If she gets hit by a Mack truck, it's going to have the same effect on her that it is on, on us. On a side note, we, we mentioned the, uh, the women's big wave event last week. WSL put an interview up with Laura Anover, and uh, the first time she'd ever seen, seen the wave at jaws in person was 45 minutes before she paddled out. Yeah, so using cool, entirely it? borrowed equipment. Yeah, there's a really nice little video on the WSL website actually just about her and about that, that day that she was paddling out at Jaws. Mm. And just knowing that those guys can survive that and that's way beyond the waves I'm surfing today makes me feel really reassured that, that I'm going to be all right. That's not to say that you're not going to potentially injure yourself when you're out surfing bigger waves. Um, but usually the size of the waves doesn't correlate with the injuries. I mean, you know, we know from our experience lifeguarding that most injuries actually happen in waist-high waves in waist-high water. Um, and as the waves get bigger, people are underwater longer when other surfers and boards are going over them than they come up and actually they're usually, um, you know, they're usually okay. So, you know, injuries are possible. We're not saying that anyone's Superman, but they're just not more likely as the waves get bigger and heavier. Another factor is breath hold training, which we do a lot with our guests at the resort. That's a big part of the... Uh, lectures that we do during the week and the practical stuff as well and just knowing that you can be down underwater for a long time again gives you a lot of confidence makes you a lot calmer slows your heart down and means that you can actually be underwater for longer when we did that course with Kurt Crack from performance freediving a few years ago mm -hmm. you know and, and we thought we could hold our breath for a minute or so and, and after a, a training with him we, we got up to like three minutes four minutes you know that gave me a lot more confidence going out in big waves Another thing is riding big boards in small waves. I go out with a lot of really experienced surfers on those one or two days a year where suddenly it's much bigger than anything we usually surf and they have got no confidence riding a seven foot or a seven foot six board, a, a gun. And they want to go out on the board that they're usually surfing in everyday surf because they haven't ridden it before and they're totally undergunned and getting pitched and in the wrong place and unable to deal with it. Yeah. So, you know, go out on a, on a step up board when you don't have to. So that on the days when you do need that board, you're already comfortable with where to lie on it, how to paddle it, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Me and Asher were talking before we all went off to Indonesia about the, the step up boards that we ordered. And uh, I took mine out on a couple of occasions when it probably wasn't necessary. I could have just surfed my, my normal shortboard. But the confidence that I had in that board when I got to Indonesia was very, very high. Like I knew I, I knew the board worked. I knew I could depend on it. I knew what it felt like to take a steep late drop on that board. And so, okay, it's a slightly bigger later drop, but, but I have confidence in the equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you'll feel a bit stupid when you're out there <laughs> <laughs> and you're paddling yeah. around on a seven foot gun on, on a small on your, day. your Lopez shape. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but really, I mean, it, the, the, the payoff for doing that is really significant. Yeah. I've, I've been out on days where I've been really comfortable riding a seven foot or a seven foot six board because I've spent a lot of time riding them. Um, and, you know, it, the payoff has, has been some of the best day surfing of my life. Going on to the next point, all around fitness, I won't spend a lot of time on, but obviously that's really important. Yeah. Just if you know that you're fit, and it, you know, not only is there the benefit of being fitter, but there's the psychological confidence that you get from just knowing you've put a lot of time in getting fitter as well. Another thing is, and this is where I see a lot of surfers go wrong, push yourself at every opportunity. It's not like mountain climbing. You can't say, all right, I'm going to climb whatever mountain Everest next year and I'm going to train this year. And, mm -hmm. You know, you, you have to just go out when the swell gets big and don't miss those opportunities. They don't come around that often in most places in the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just go out there and get in amongst it every time you possibly have the opportunity. Just don't hold back. Yeah, I, I, I would add into that, you know, every opportunity you have to stretch your comfort zone is fantastic. And be aware that it's absolutely fine to turn around and come back. Yeah. It's, I remember one session in France and I paddled out and I thought it was going to be big. And it was only when I made it to the outside sandbar that I realized quite how big it was. And I wore three or four pretty heavy waves on the head, got pinned down to the bottom for a while and pretty much turned around and came straight back to the beach. But the next time that I went out on those same sandbars, not quite so big. But I was way more comfortable and within that comfort zone because I'd experienced it bigger, even though I, you know, I came in having not ridden anything. And I, I think one thing that always helps me is before I paddle out, I'm always thinking about how I'm going to get back in. Like, what's, what's the escape route? Where, where's, where do I go 
when everything doesn't quite go to plan. And if you've got that in your head, then when everything goes wrong, you already know how to react. It's not a problem. You turn around, you go back to the beach, or you paddle out wide of the of the breaking peak, or you know whatever that escape plan is. Pre-plan. Don't wait for things to go wrong. Yeah, I, I think that's really really important. You know, when we talk about pushing yourself at every opportunity, I think one thing that we do with our guests a lot is we really sit them down when we're in the classroom away from the ocean and they're nice and calm and we describe situations okay you're here there's a set coming here there's a surfer here what are your choices how are you going to deal with it go through that process think yourself through the worst case scenarios that are going to happen to you and what you're going to do uh, and then you know go out and get in amongst it assuming that you've got a way out when you need it you know so i think that the last thing i'd just like to say is this there's a great quote from muhammad ali uh, the fight is won or lost far away from witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym and out on the road long before I dance under those lights. You know, I think that that really sums it up well. You, you think about understanding the mechanisms under the wave, those those calming techniques, the logical hooks that work for you, your, your, the breath hold training you've done, the time you've spent on bigger boards, getting comfortable with it, your fitness training, all the opportunities you've taken in the past to push yourself and not hold back. And you know, add all that together. And then when you're sitting out at that big wave spot, you can tell yourself, as I do, look, I, I've already done everything I can do. So I don't need to feel nervous or anxious about my performance. I've essentially won or lost this fight already. All I've got to do now is be out here and enjoy it yeah. and just rely on the skills that I've already got. I'm not going to improve myself today. I'm just going to use the skills that I already have or don't have. That's almost all we've got time for this episode, ladies and gentlemen. But before we go, uh, we do have a few what to watches for you. Uh, Will, what's your recommendation? So my what to watch this week is a little video by Billabong. It's part of their Board Tales series. It's part two. Uh, and it's Tyler Warren talking about his quiver. And he's got some very interesting boards that I think is worth um, having a look at. And he surfs them all. And it's very cool. I think part one was Dave Rastovich was That's your right. what to watch a few episodes ago it wasn't was it? Yeah. yeah yeah I think the Tyler Warren one is a little bit better there's more yeah. info about the boards it's a little bit more technical very cool Rue what's your uh, recommendation John John episode five of the 12 series that yeah. he's got on YouTube that seems to be a reoccurring theme I think John John's 12 has uh has has come up I think if that doesn't win the web series of the year at the uh, surfer poll I'll be very surprised so they're, they're going to do two more episodes this was episode five mm -hmm. I understand there's going to be can seven it, episodes can it yeah. win when it's not done I think it can yeah I don't know can <laughs> it John John's one I mean, the year isn't done so yeah. it's appropriate yeah, I mean the, the quality of the production and the filming and everything of that for you know compared to any other web series is just so through the roof Hurley's got to be pretty happy on that investment to follow him around yeah. this year <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that was a pretty That's good move off. yeah yeah. I thought episode five particularly was really good because, you know, he damaged his back leg knee, which is... His back leg? The knee on his oh, back okay. leg. Oh, okay. I was thinking... He damaged the knee like in the dog. middle. Front leg, back leg. <laughs> <laughs> you back, mean back foot when surfing? He okay. hurt his yeah. back, his leg, and his right. knee. Right, okay. <laughs> All three together. It was a really bad wipeout. Yeah. Uh, no, he, he damaged the knee on his leg that goes at the back. On his hind leg. On his <laughs> leg on his, just below his withers. Um... <laughs> Which is a really common injury in surfing. And it's something that, you know, we, we've been talking about off air a lot about how a lot of surfers when they drop their knees in together in order to shift their weight backwards and forwards with their hips which is something really important that we're coaching a lot uh, here at the resort but they do it without turning their feet in and leave their feet pointing slightly outwards which is a far more natural intuitive way to want to stand it feels more comfortable but then when you drop your knees in together you're slightly collapsing your knees and ankles sideways. And then when you're going into a big pressure turn, you know, you're putting a lot of pressure, particularly on your back knee, and it's a really common injury. I don't know for sure that that's exactly what happened to John John. You know, I have seen him stand that way on the board, and I know that it's a really common injury. So that, that was a half answer to a listener email that we got about stance recently. What was your recommendation then, Ash? Stab Mag just released a board design article with Maurice Cole and Bo Foster. And it was really interesting, and the surfing quality in it is insane. And Maurice Cole is uh, obviously famous for inventing the reverse V surfboard, where the V on it is under the front foot mm -hmm. as opposed to the back, which was really prevalent before and pretty much revolutionized boards at the time. And uh, I'm, I'm a really big fan of Bo Foster surfing, and he's surfing those point break waves in South Oz really well. It's got a really groovy soundtrack, and I think you guys should check it out. Uh, Maurice Cole was behind those teddy bear, the teddy bear logo boards back in the 90s and early Still 90s. Is. 
Yep. You see them all over Indo and Oz, but I haven't seen them in recent years. Is that because they're just out there in Indo and Oz thing? Or I've seen a, seen a bunch of them around in, in, in Europe and France. Yeah, he's in a, an Australian shaper, but I think he moved to France in the 90s, which is when him and Tom Curran started working together. Oh, okay. That movie is only available on Stab's website, so I'll post a link to the show notes, but I can't actually embed that video onto our website. Yeah, so. a, bit, a bit tricky with their web player. Stab Mag is. Mm. It's not the best web player, but it's it is. It's almost like having invested all this money in the project. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to keep it to yourself. Visit their website. It's weird. It's very peculiar. Um, my recommendation for this week is a trailer for a movie. It's called Distance Between Dreams, which is following Greg Long through the El Nino season uh, last year in Hawaii and Big Jaws and all that sort of stuff. It looks like it's going to be a really, really well-made uh, movie. Red Bull uh, have provided all the money and the, the funding for it. And it, the whole movie is going to be available for free for one week on Red Bull's website from December 19th, uh, so over over Christmas. And just in case the next episode is now in time, I just wanted to plug that because I think it will be well worth watching. Should we all tweet it on the day on our new Twitters that we've set up? We could do that. Greg Long's one of my favourite big wave surfers to hear talking about big wave surfing because I feel like he's very articulate and specifically talks about the mechanisms and things that are going through his mind using unambiguous language. Whereas, you know, a lot of big wave surfers will just use very general kind of adjectives. Mm-hmm. You're like, it was awesome. And mm-hmm. it doesn't really give you much insight into what's going on. So what was the name of the movie that uh, Greg Long brought out a few years ago or, or was featured heavily in? Was it Sin Quay? Sin Quay Nom. That one. It was um, Patagonia, wasn't it? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is all for this week. You can contact any of us with your thoughts and suggestions. You can reach me uh, through podcast at surfsimply.com. You can reach Rue at... I'm on Twitter at Surfing Simply. Will? Also Twitter at Will and the Water. Ash? Social media at King underscore Asher. Unless it's on Twitter, in which case it's King underscore 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 Asher. Asher because tag on Twitter. Someone got me before. <laughs> and yeah. actually, listeners, if you just type Surf Simply into Twitter, you'll find all We're of this. We'll just pop up straight at away. Surf Simply. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, until next time from all of us here. Bye-bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.